electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. On top of that infrastructure news that's just breaking, we'll catch you up on all the Fed speak today. The Hawks seem to be taking on the Doves as the battle over tapering begins. We'll look at who will win out on the timeline over tightening and how markets are expected to react. Plus, we'll also talk about some drug dealing, deal making in the pharma sector that's expected to reach a record high total this year of over $300 billion in deals. We've got the names that could be ripe for a takeover. And if Bitcoin miners come calling, should you respond? We'll explore the battle taking place in cities across the country between innovation on the one hand and energy usage on the other. But we do start with today's markets. Mr. Chu is here with those numbers. All right, Ms. Evans, we're talking high energy for the markets overall because we are green across the screen. The bulls are winning out today. The Dow Industrial is up by over 300 points at this stage, 34,192. The S&P, one half of 1% gains, 26 points there in the NASDAQ, 14,373, 100-point gain there. I get to draw those great yellow stars, golden stars next to each of these, the NASDAQ and the S&P, because they both hit record intraday highs today. We are also looking at the big Internet stocks. If you take a look at the white line, that's the First Trust Dow Jones Internet ETF, ticker FDN, and then the Invesco QQQ, which is the orange line. That tracks the NASDAQ 100. You can see it's been outperforming numerous times throughout the course of the year, and even more so since the market's recent lows back in the middle part of May. Since then, by the way, this particular large cap internet, mega cap internet ETF is up roughly 17, 18% since mid-May versus a very respectable 11% gain for the NASDAQ 100 overall. So yes, it is those mega cap names like Facebook, Alphabet, Amazon doing a lot of the heavy lifting now. And then check out this stock of the day. Restaurant side of things, we've been talking so much about the reopening trade for months now, quarters at this stage. Darden Restaurants, Kelly, I know you're a fan because you're an Olive Garden type gal, I can tell this. <laughs> However, if you look at Darden Restaurants of 3.5% today, a doubling over the last year. Why? Because their restaurant sales at established restaurant locations are now almost where they were pre-pandemic back in 2019. And Kelly, it's not Olive Garden that's driving the biggest growth there Guess which chain it is? Red Lobster. No, because they sold that off. Remember that. It was, it was private equity, but it's Longhorn Steakhouse. There we go. 13.5% sales growth at established restaurant locations comped back to night or 2019. So pre-pandemic, they're almost there. Darden Restaurant's getting a bid today's trade. Still miss the Cheddar Bay Biscuits. There you Dom, go. Dom, thank you very much. <laughs> right. We begin with the developing story in Washington right now, where we apparently have a deal on infrastructure, evidently with a $1 trillion price point. But let's get to Elon Moy with all the details. Elon. Well, Kelly, the president apparently made that announcement to reporters just after meeting with a bipartisan group of senators at the White House for roughly an hour or so. Biden said he had to make compromises on investing in human capital and the care economy, but that they did end up coming to an agreement. Now, we know that the rough price tag for uh, this framework is about a trillion dollars. That includes about $559 billion in new spending. And we are hoping to get some more details soon. 
but all eyes now are going to be on the Senate because today several progressive Democrats made it clear that they will not vote for a smaller bipartisan package unless there's also an agreement to move forward on the rest of President Biden's $4 trillion agenda without Republican support. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said that it can't be just one or the other, bipartisan or budget reconciliation. It has to be both. So we will await further details of this package. But again, President Biden saying that they do have a deal on a bipartisan framework. Kelly. Elon, why do people keep calling this a trillion dollar package if only half of it is new spending? And how is it being paid for, if at all? Well, so that's one thing that we don't know exactly how it's going to be paid for. Senator Rob Portman did say after that meeting that there will be no new taxes. I can tell you that at least part of the money will be uh, repurposed funding for broadband that was in one of the CARES packages or COVID relief packages. That'll be used to pay for some of the broadband spending in this bill. But the rest of it, we just don't know yet. Hoping to find out soon. And as for the price tag, you know, math can be a little bit fuzzy in Washington. So some of the money is money that might have been spent anyways because of uh, appro ongoing appropriations. But the key figure, I think, is how much in new spending are they going to have to come up with? Because that's where you're going to have to really find those pay-fors to cover it. Right. So we're looking at maybe half a trillion in new spending. And did you say that Portman said there would be no new taxes? What are the other options to pay for it? Well, so the Democrats have been talking about um, enhanced IRS enforcement, um, some of that money coming from closing the tax gap. Republicans have been talking about repurposing COVID funding. They're also talking about perhaps some sort of infrastructure financing bank, uh, public-private partnerships. So we'll see what they're able to sort of cobble together to pay for this. But um, that has been the sticking point all along. And uh, we'll, we'll see whether or not Republicans and Democrats the rest of them in the caucus are going to be on board with this as well. Elon, one quick final question. Is the SALT deduction in this one way or the other? My understanding is that it is not involved in this particular discussion. But what I can tell you, according to a source familiar, is that it is part of the discussion around that budget reconciliation process that would be sort of the rest of the agenda. Uh, Democrats are looking at setting aside $120 billion for uh, either lifting the cell cap or removing it altogether for about five years. So that is part of the discussion on the rest of it, which would have to be done without Republican support. Yeah. All right, Elon, a lot of news this afternoon. Thank you very, very much, Elon Moy, bringing us up to speed on this infrastructure package. By the way, the president, who just was the one that said we have a deal, will be speaking about this issue sometime this afternoon. We'll bring you, uh, bring you that when it does happen. In the meantime, we've had a lot of Fed speak today. It's all related. The Fed's looking at what's going to happen on the fiscal piece of things. Uh, the Hawks versus the Doves right now trying to figure out what the right taper time frame is. Dallas Fed President Kaplan and St. Louis Fed President Bullard are set to speak this hour as their battle heats up and grows more intense between the Hawks and Doves. Representing the Hawks, fittingly, is Atlanta Fed President Bostic saying today that he sees a liftoff on rates in 2022. Philly Fed President Harker supports starting the discussions on tapering. Over on the dovish side, New York Fed President John Williams says it's too early to talk hikes and he's sticking with his view for a 2023 liftoff. And Loretta Mester says she's not yet thinking about adjusting monetary policy. Of course, Chair Powell himself sticks with his earlier forecast and his belief that inflation is transitory. So where does this all leave investors? Joining me now is David Zervos. He's the chief market strategist at Jefferies, unapologetically bullish smooth uh, <laughs> and blues world tour. Uh, Dave, you've always got the merch to okay. back up the investment calls. Um, I know the blues aren't part of the story right now, especially with rates where they are, but let's just focus on the investment implications here, especially in light of what Elon just said about the infrastructure bill. Um, what are the implications here for, the, for markets? 
So, you know, Kelly, I, I think we've all been expecting something. It's actually, from what I can tell from what you said, it sounds a little bit smaller uh, than many had expected. So I don't expect that it moves much of the needle for the Fed. I think the Fed debate is as you couched it. You've got a number of presidents that are trying to stake some rather aggressive uh, real estate claims out on the fringes. Uh, they're, they're typically the ones that do that or that have been doing that. Jim's a little bit of a, a surprise, but he's tended to flip-flop a lot over the last decade. So I don't see any great surprises. And I think Powell kind of stayed the course the whole time, whether it was a press conference or the, the recent testimony. I think he's given you exactly uh, the roadmap of where they are. And a lot uh, will depend on data. A lot will depend on this employment data and a bit on inflation. But inflation is the lagging indicator, as you know. Dave, when people talk about the strength of the economy, I think they tend to fall in the camp of it's so strong it's going to be inflationary or it's not that strong and deflation is the concern. I feel like you're sort of in the middle. So for a lot of people at home who are trying to figure out, you know, they see the price hikes, they understand some of it's kind of a one-time pandemic effect, but that other uh, parts of this could could be more sticky. The amount of, you know, if, if monetary velocity were to pick up tomorrow, this could all be a very different story. Where are we in the kind of inflation-deflation debate right now? Well, look, the velocity of money has continuously collapsed now for nearly for decades. Uh, so this idea that monetary aggregates have any portend anything for inflation still remains a very uh, a very uh, elusive idea. Uh, further, Kelly, uh, this whole Phillips curve concept seems to keep coming back all the time, something that we've tried to beat down in, in, at Jefferies for many, many years now. And this idea that somehow strong growth and strong employment growth are correlated with lots of inflation just doesn't work. It didn't work in the 90s, didn't work in the 2000s. And you know, February of 2020, all that time, we were three handles on unemployment rates three and a half percent unemployment rate, and we were still missing our target by 50, 60 basis points on the downside and in inflation. So why is it now, all of a sudden, after COVID, that the Phillips curve is somehow going to resurface and, you know, bring this, this inflation that everybody's getting worried well, about? You have great stories for why there's temporary inflation, great stories, bottlenecks, everything related to COVID. You have nothing that tells you that there's some permanent change. But you see find. wages going up. And I think that's the the piece of this that was missing for much of the last expansion. So people are just saying, well, is this going to be a one-time effect or should we right. expect to see nice wage gains for the foreseeable future? I, I mean, and I guess more broadly speaking, is this an economy so strong that any Fed support is absurd and ridiculous on its face and needs to go away immediately? Or is this economy so weak that if the Fed even hints like it did last week at tapering, the 10-year slides back under 1.5%. I just don't understand how you can kind of talk about a labor market that's uh, overheating when we have 7.5 million less people working than we did in February of 2020. That is not an overheating labor market by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, let's take a million out for early retirement. Let's, you know, let's throw a little more even if you want. Or, or some people who are going to have to, you know, you know, that, that got detached in a more permanent way. But again, I just, it, it baffles me. And I understand the wage story is very interesting. We got rid of a lot of highly labor intensive businesses that had lower labor costs associated with them. We're going to bring those back slowly and probably at a lower uh, level than we had them before. And that's going to drag back down the wage story. But productivity numbers look off the charts, five, 6%. Businesses have figured out how to do a lot of things with less mm -hmm. labor. We're making more GDP with seven and a half million less people than we've ever made in the history of GDP. So, again, I'm just I'm struggling to see why the Hawks, you know, they jump from financial instability risks to wages to some phantom Phillips curve. 
I, I think there's just there's not a story there. But look, it's it's great headlines. It's great headlines to be out there, be hawkish, and and kind of stake your claim and be the first person that starts talking about it and rattle the bond market, rattle the stock market. So where do um, you, Dave Zervos, no. or when I guess I should say, do you think they're going to start talking about and then start actually doing the taper? So I'm I'm a believer that Jackson Hole is too early. We're probably going to get something uh, in the very beginning of next year, and honestly. I think Jay's swan song, if you will, before he leaves the position, because I do think there will be a new chair next year. His term is up in February. Will be to kick off the taper and really leave that to whoever the next Fed chair is. Um, so, you know, maybe that's January. Maybe that's a little bit earlier. Yeah, and I know you see kind of clear sailing for the stock market from this point of view as well. It is very counterintuitive and, and goes against the conventional grain right now. And Dave, it's good to see you again. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Kelly. David Zervos of Jeffries. In the meantime, we have a store opening to talk about. Downtown Los Angeles, the newest Apple store there, opening moments ago. And CEO Tim Cook, you can see him. And that, I think, is the head of retail uh, as well that we just spoke to yesterday here on the network. Uh, she and Tim Cook, Apple CEO, making their, I mean, is it a surprise appearance if he shows up every time now? Still, you can tell people are thrilled to see him. <laughs> uh, shaking yeah, hands, taking pictures. It's amazing the store openings can still garner this much excitement. What is it, more than a decade uh, into them? Coming up, Bitcoin miners are looking for a new home as Beijing cracks down on crypto. And they could be heading to Texas, despite all the worries about the state's fragile energy grid. In fact, Kate Rooney is down in Texas today with the story. We're here in Rockdale, Texas. You can feel the heat and the wind from these supercomputers making new Bitcoin. We'll tell you after the break why miners say that they're not a risk to the Texas energy grid. More on the exchange coming up next. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back. As states like Texas and Florida court Bitcoin miners, let's get to a cautionary tale that illustrates the promise and peril of mining. A few years ago, miners flocked to Plattsburgh, New York for its cheap energy, but their consumption caused a host of problems that could offer some lessons for today's miner migration. Joining me now is Colin Reed. He's the former mayor of Plattsburgh, now a professor of economics and finance at SUNY Plattsburgh. It's great to have you here. What happened after uh, after this experiment began? Well, it forced us to use a lot of the quota for the very cheap energy we get from the Niagara River, and it uh, caused our constituents to be in an absolute uproar because of the much higher electricity costs that have incurred. Is this a unique situation in Plattsburgh that you had one cheap energy source that you basically used up for mining? 
Correct. We had 1.9 cents per kilowatt hour industrial rate for the miners. Uh, and once that quota was used up, uh, we had to foot the bill across the entire city for the difference for in this spot market. Could other cities, though, be better off? Or I guess what I'm saying is, are you uniquely sort of um, positioned that way? Or is this the way it works pretty much across the country? Somewhat. If you think about it, there's only a fixed amount of electricity we have to go around. And if you start using 10, 15 percent of your supply, like we were diverting to Bitcoin, it very quickly increases the rates everywhere for everybody and puts a lot of pressure on the grid for that matter as well. I wonder, though, if people can look to your experiment, why they think theirs might end differently this time. Hopefully they could learn from some of the things that we had to uh, endure. Uh, we put in a whole set of building and safety codes and especially a code that requires the Bitcoin operators to convert that excess heat to actually heating buildings and structures, et cetera, to do so in a sustainable way. So maybe they can avoid with uh, good planning some of the problems that uh, we had to work out for ourselves. It's fascinating to think about how that uh, heat could be redeployed. <laughs> Listen, I, I lived outside Syracuse for many, many years. I know what it's like up there. Uh, you could use the heat over the winter. You guys actually went so far as to ban uh, crypto mining, didn't you, a few years back? Just a moratorium until we could properly get all the protections in place. And then we opened it up again. Once we opened it up again, required uh, them to uh, realize these building code safety measures and recycling just a portion of their heat. And no longer were any Bitcoin uh, people interested. Before that, we were having a number of applicants every single week trying to beat down our door to get in. Do you suspect that places who want Bitcoin mining don't care what happened in your case, that they might say, that ah, whatever, it'll it'll be good for us for a short period of time. And by the time it becomes a problem, we'll just kind of let them move on. Yeah, in a short period of time, I think is the operational term, because we don't know how long this phenomenon is going to last until we move to a proof of uh, stake kind of model as well. But uh, counties and cities are enticed by all these promises of job creation, which when you look into it, and I have, they just don't materialize. We had one of the biggest Bitcoin operators in the world operating here and generated only a handful of jobs. That was Coinmint. Um, I'm curious what your own viewpoint, if you, to the extent you've had one on crypto, how that's evolved as you had a front row seat to this experiment over the last several years. You know, I'm a fan of cryptocurrency and uh, digital currencies. They are the wave of the future. We are gonna see nations and, and central banks getting into it, certainly. But it just needs to be done right. Uh, it's not if we should do it, it's how we should do it well. And we're just not implementing it very well yet. And so if, I guess the final takeaway is if you want Bitcoin mining, you have to do it in a way that's almost disconnected from the local electric grid. Are there any cheap way? You know, we think you mentioned Niagara River. You could think about Niagara Falls. We, you know, obviously a lot of people in the community want to use renewable sources of energy. If somebody did this at scale, how big a scale are we talking in terms of the financial investment or the kinds of natural resources they would need to pull this off? Oh, it's, it's absolutely huge. Uh, as I said, we're up to 10 or 15% of the electricity for an entire city just going to that one industry, basically almost only one provider alone. And you might say, well, you know, they, they bought the dam. For instance, there's a case in Maine where they purchased a dam, uh, you know, good on them. But that's diverting power that could be used in other more socially responsible ways at the same time. What we really need to do is come to grips with how we're going to generate the safety in this industry and do so in a sustainable manner rather than this kind of wild and woolly approach we've been doing up till now. It's fascinating. Colin, thanks for joining us and providing this needed context. 
You bet. Thank you for your interest. Colin Reed was the former mayor of Plattsburgh, New York. Let's go down to Texas now where they are embarking on this experiment to see if it's going to be different this time. Kate Rooney is here with more for us. Kate. Hey, Kelly, Bitcoin mining facilities like the one here in Rockdale, Texas, take a lot of energy. You can see these supercomputers behind me. They're stacked about 20 feet in the air. The hallway I'm standing in is about three to four football fields long. And a lot of people in Texas are wondering a little bit worried here about what this means for the already fragile energy grid. Miners, though, say that they shouldn't be worried. Energy here in Texas is among the cheapest in the country. Texas operates its own power grid. It's deregulated, but it has been proven to be pretty fragile during peak demand. The state saw rolling blackouts in the winter and sees the same during heat waves. Miners say that they shut down operations in times like that. We saw it here yesterday. And because they buy energy on a long-term contract at stable prices, they can often sell it back into the market at a premium when the prices spike. They say that they are not competing with folks at home trying to run their air conditioning. Miners get a notification from the power grid operator known as ERCOT. They can flip off a switch and turn off these mines in seconds. It's been roughly 98 degrees here, so we saw it happen a couple times. But this means that they are also losing out on a key source of income. Of of course, new Bitcoin, and it is up to the miners to make that call. They push back on the idea uh, that some might try to get around the system. Anybody that enters into this business, as you can see because of the infrastructure behind us, it's capital intense. Bad actors typically aren't spending hundreds of millions of dollars to build these facilities. So you're wanting A, to receive the best incentives, the most benefits from the city, the state, and the counties. And to do that, you have to hire, behave properly, and be a, actually just be a good citizen. And Kelly, miners say that in more normal times, they actually help balance the power grid by adding demand to places like Rockdale and more rural areas versus cities like Dallas or Houston. Back to you. We'll see if this goes the way of Plattsburgh, New York or not. Kate, thank you very much. Our Kate Rooney in Texas today. Coming up, the Wall Street Journal reporting that our parent company, Comcast, considered merging with Viacom CBS or buying Roku in its push for streaming. Comcast calls the report pure speculation. So where could the next mega media merger be? We'll explore that. Plus, the Teamsters are voting today on a plan to unionize Amazon workers. Their national director for Amazon recently called it, quote, enemy number one. We'll talk about what it means for America's second largest employer in a moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on markets. The Dow's up 318, just off session highs when it was up 356 points. That's about a 1% gain, and it's the outperformer today. The S&P up half a percent, the Nasdaq up six tenths. By the way, we are going to hear from President Biden next hour on this infrastructure deal that was apparently just finalized. Again, thinking through the implications there in terms of what portion of it is actually new funding, looks like maybe half, and what portion of it could contribute to, to have pay-fors in the form of 
corporate taxes, uh, other kinds of things. That's all to be discussed perhaps when we get more details from the president. Uh, in the meantime, we're keeping a close eye on the sectors that are powering this rally today. It's financials and tech back in the leadership. The financials are up more than 1%. And in terms of the individual movers, FedEx is moving higher ahead of its earnings after the bell. And the Wall Street Journal is reporting it suspended service for 1,400 of its freight customers this month in an effort to ease congestion on its shipping network. They resumed services to some customers this week. The share is still doing pretty nicely. They're up 1.5%. Meantime, Playboy's parent company, PLBY Group, it's up after Stiefel initiated the stock with a buy rating and a $52 price target. It's about 40% upside from here. They expect the company to use their strong balance sheet uh, to make some moves. Playboy shares up 6.5%. Let's get over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Let's begin in Florida, where in the last 30 minutes, the governor told reporters that rescuers are hopeful of bringing some survivors out of the rubble. That's after a 12-story beachside condo collapsed overnight near Miami. Right now, uh, we have the fire rescue. They are in search and rescue mode. They are trying to identify survivors. I know they have made contact um, uh, with some, and they are, they are doing everything they can to save lives. And that is ongoing, and they're not going to rest. The Justice Department is urging state and local courts to delay tenant evictions by requiring landlords to apply for federal rental assistance before they ask for the court's permission to carry out an eviction. The Department's Civil Rights Division says that pending cases could be delayed for up to 60 days to try to give landlords time to apply for that assistance. Today, the CDC said that it does not expect to extend its pandemic eviction ban past the end of July. And a town in Chile would like to find a new home for some 300 sea lions that have taken over its beaches. Local authorities think that they may be on shore to avoid killer whales or orcas in the water. So far, no major incidents, but there may not be a lot that the town can do, Kelly, because there is a 10-year ban on removing sea lions from their natural habitat. They're also asking people to not avoid or feed the sea lions. So, I don't know, their hands might be tied, Kelly. <laughs> Ridiculous, but that makes for great photos in the meantime. Agreed. Well, thank you. We've got a Robert's Redstone rumor, BuzzFeed's lofty ambitions, the NFL's media moves, that and much more is in today's Rapid Fire right after this quick break. Hi, everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar right now. It's time for Rapid Fire, and joining me today to break down the headlines, we welcome Bob Bassani, Sarah Fisher of Axios, and Ed Lee of the New York Times and a CNBC contributor. Big media theme here today. It's great to have you guys all with us. And we are going to begin with a streaming land grab after the bombshell discovery and Time Warner spinoff last month. All eyes are on the media giants to see where the next mega merger might occur. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Comcast CEO Brian Roberts, that's our parent company, the CEO Brian Roberts, says he doesn't feel the need to seek a merger but hasn't ruled out targets like Roku or Viacom. Now, this was in the journal. In a statement, Comcast called that report, quote, pure speculation. The shares are down on the report. They're about half percent higher today. And they, of course, are the parent company of CNBC and NBC Universal. Ed Lee, who do you believe? <laughs> Look, I, I think there's a state of play in the media landscape right now where everything's always for sale anyway. Um, whether or not Brian Roberts is actively seeking out acquisitions, I mean, I'm more inclined to believe what he's saying in his statement, right, that they're not really looking immediately. At the same time, you know, Viacom CBS is a definite target if in this space. So it's, it would be ridiculous to suggest that no one's not thinking about it, but I don't think it's as active as, as, as the journal story makes it out to be largely because of antitrust concerns, right? I mean, if, you're, if that deal were to happen, you'd have Paramount joining with Universal, you'd have uh, CBS 
joining with NBC. So th there's there's a lot of thorny sort of uh, regulatory issues with a deal like that. Uh, and I don't know that that's necessarily a, a route that uh, that Brian Roberts wants to take. Sarah, I see you nodding along with that point about antitrust. But at the same time, the landscape has changed so much in a way. These players are all now up against big tech. Yeah, but you still can't own two broadcast networks. So that's 100 percent going to be addressed. If they were to go after Viacom, they'd have to probably divest one of them. And then you have to ask yourself what's valuable about Viacom CBS without potentially CBS. And then the other concern is how much regulatory scrutiny is already on something like Comcast, which just a few years ago, you'll remember, bought Sky. They're already touching so many things. So I think the regulatory concerns are paramount here, no pun intended. Uh, I actually think of that report, the sexier option would be an acquisition of Roku. I agree with Ed Lee. I don't think that they're actively pursuing it right now, but Comcast has made some really interesting plays in distribution. Xfinity X1 is really smart. And so Roku seems like the better option to me here. Expand your distribution footprint as opposed to really going on the content side. And uh, Bob, this gets into the business models of the likes of Comcast and it has investors thinking through what model they want that to be going forward. Yeah, I can tell you what model I want. I love being part of Comcast. I was with General <laughs> Electric when we, NBC was there. We were sort of a flapping appendage at the very end. That was very unpleasant. I think this synergy works here. Comcast, NBC, broadband, I think it works very well. Now, people say AT&T and Time Warner didn't work. Well, maybe Comcast has better management. Maybe it manages the properties a little better. I'm just saying what everybody wants here is global international distribution. That's an issue. Got to figure out a way to do that. Got to figure out a way to get better distribution for Peacock. That's definitely an issue. Buy Roku for $75 billion? Good heavens. How are they going to integrate that? Brian Roberts, you can build out a streaming service of your own. I know you can. And I want to stay with you. Just my own opinion. <laughs> Sarah, I'll give you a last quick word here. Yeah, no, I agree with it. It's a pricey acquisition if you were to go into something like Roku, but I don't know that Comcast can build that out. Take a look at the players that are existing right now between Amazon's Fire TV, Google Chromecast, and Roku. There's not a lot of wiggle room to inch your way in there. It might be easier for him to buy his way in. All right. Well, that's a way to think about it, especially Roku shares a few years ago might have looked more attractive than they do today. Uh, but you do what you got to do at some point, I guess. All right. Topic two today is what your SPAC deal says about your personality. We talk about that because BuzzFeed, which is known for those quizzes and listicles, formally announced its intention to go public via SPAC. Its valuation has shrunk by nearly $200 million over the past five years. But here's what CEO Jonah Preddy had to say earlier on Tech Check when asked about that. I would say there was a, there was definitely a, a very uh, a hype period for digital media when a lot of companies were growing really quickly but didn't have really strong sustainable businesses. We've seen growth reaccelerate last year and into this year, and it's um it's very exciting um you know time right now where digital media is maturing and hitting the period where it's a real real businesses can be built with real defensibility, scalability, profitability, and growth. Ed Lee, is it too late for BuzzFeed? It's not too late, but I mean, I take issue with his sort of sense of this idea of growth. I mean, yes, the ad market has come roaring back to life, especially in digital, especially during the pandemic. And uh, sort of premium placements like BuzzFeed have benefited from that. At the same time, it seems to me his growth strategy is to acquire things, right? So as part of this SPAC uh, announcement, they're going to acquire complex networks. They acquired HuffPost back in November, and he's now talking about doing more acquisitions. So. I mean, it, it sort of suggests that they can't quite grow enough organically, so therefore they need to keep buying other things. 
And I think that might be a smart bet, but at the same time, what does it say about the underlying business that that's what he has to keep doing to, to, to get growth? Bob? Well, I agree with Ed. I have two problems. Number one, the smack, the SPAC, excuse me, model in general, I have problems with. Uh, it's a tough situation when you have to give up the way most SPAC models are, 20% of the company to the sponsor. That's, that's a really tough thing to give up, in my opinion. They're doing that. Secondly, you look at the competition. You've got Vox out there. You've got some of the other companies that are out there, Group 9, uh, Vice Media. It seems to me like it's pretty intensifying in terms of the competition, not the other way around. And that this is indeed a vehicle, as Ed says, for either acquiring mm-hmm. or itself getting acquired. It totally feels like a roll-up. Uh, I agree. It, sort of staying with this theme today, let's talk about Google, which has announced its delayed its plan to end support for third-party cookies until 2023. Now, Google's trying to increase privacy for users, but ending cookie support has huge implications for the advertising industry. Some big ad tech names are soaring on this news today. Trade Desk is up almost 14%. Uh, you can see the others moving higher as well. As Alphabet pulls you know, more than 80% of their ad revenue from these digital ads, uh, will this decision ultimately hurt their bottom line? Sarah, talk us through kind of what this story is really all about. Well, I think Google is going to win here no matter what, because the proposals that it's seeking to phase out third-party cookies, the biggest ones that they're getting people to coalesce around are theirs. So they're going to figure out a way to win. I actually think the big winner today are those other ad tech firms that you just talked about. Their businesses are built on tracking cookies. You think about companies like Critio or the Trade Desk. And when those cookies go away, they need to scramble to find some sort of new replacement. Now, when we thought that these cookies were going to go away in 2022, everyone was sweating. They were scrambling to figure out what to do. They only had a few more months. Now they have another year and a half to breathe and figure this out, Kelly. So it's a huge, huge advantage for them. But ultimately, what does this mean for the digital ad market? The dollars are not going to shift away from digital. They're just going to migrate into different places. And I think ultimately we're going to see that tracking is going to be very different. You're not going to see as many ads creeping up on you on the Internet. And that's hopefully a good thing for consumers if we can get it right. And Ed, it feels like they could still keep kicking the can down the road, but they're up against Apple, which now has this huge national ad campaign about how private the iPhone is, sort of raising the ire of, of apps like Facebook all over again. So where is this all heading? If it's getting more private, won't ads be less effective? So I, I think we have to sort of redefine private a little bit, right? I think the, the solutions, they're kicking the can down the road, that is absolutely true. But the solutions they're looking for to sort of replace these cookies are sort of cookie-like, right? So in some ways, you will still be tracked, even though it won't be tracked in the way that it had been done before. Uh, advertisers still want to sort of get that targeting. And so they're going to get it through sort of other types of systems, and, and Sarah reported on that, it was a very good story, or they're gonna do first party cookies. Like, and that's actually something that I think is, is, a, is, something, is an area that has yet to be sort of fully explored. So like Google and Facebook have some first party data. Marketers like Nike and Procter & Gamble have their own first party data. So what they're gonna do is they're gonna sort of marry their first party data at the back end and still sort of track you that way since you sort of willingly given up your information uh, on the first party end of it. So it gets trickier that way, but they're still going to try to find a way to maximize that targeting, just not in the way that they're doing now. So it, it'll it'll look similar uh, in the future is what I think. Right, Sarah, would you, you agree with that kind of bottom line on this? 
Totally agree. And the last thing I'll say is we've got a bunch of proposals for national privacy laws here. People are eyeing that. So for Google to get ahead of this is really strategic and smart before they have a law that forces their hand anyway. Ah, that old play. Fair enough. All right. Finally, today, the National Football League is enlisting Goldman to explore the possibility of selling stakes in some of its media assets. The most profitable professional sports league in the country is looking at restructuring its ownership in things like the NFL Network, Red Zone, and some digital platforms without selling them completely. Cowboys owner Jerry Jones in an interview said, quote, we are not selling. We are looking for investment partners. Um, it's, we're going to be talking about this uh, as well in a, our interview next hour with uh, with Kager. Bob, we've been speaking about scale in every single story in Rapid Fire today. It seems we're talking about yeah. you know what kind of scale we need for the traditional television business, what kind of scale you need if you're in the digital media business, what kind of scale you need if you're in the NFL, which ultimately is basically an entertainment product. Right. So you, that's exactly right. So the NFL, it turns out, has the same problems as everybody else in the media business, same problems as the cord cutting business, which is how do you get as broad a distribution as possible? They see that what they've got, they've taken NFL uh, league, the NFL uh, franchise business on television as far as they possibly can. Now they're looking to have other big media partners to expand the distribution. This is the same thing we were talking about essentially with Comcast. So you're absolutely right. Here's an interesting question. NFL is really owned by the team owners. So do the NFL going to, are the team owners going to acquiesce if NBC becomes a 10% partner in that? And what's the implication of that for the team owners? They're frac fractious enough just among the teams. Imagine having NFL or ABC or ESPN sitting there next to you. Ed, what would you add? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I agree with that. I, I think, you know, the, the, the issue that the NFL has had is as, as rich as the league is, is that they're still a, like a, a, a national U.S. sport. And I think they really want to be international, right? They're looking at, you know, the Premier League in, in, in the U.K. and all these other football leagues uh, in Europe that have international exposure uh, and getting those dollars. And I think that's something that they have yet to crack. So I think that the investment dollars they're looking for is a really a way to go more international and, and just find that bigger footprint. They need to get bigger is despite how big they already are. Right. And I mean, Sarah, that said, it feels like we're past peak Super Bowl. You know, Red Zone is a great product. We, we love it. I love Scott Hansen. I think he does a great job. But again, that itself is kind of a, a niche product. Are they just looking for bigger markets for some of these verticals? Yes, bigger markets, younger markets, and more digital. I mean, think about all of the opportunities around sports right now. When you think about things like fantasy and betting and esports, these are things where you have to have digital reach. And right now, the NFL understands that, hence their exclusive deal with Amazon on Thursdays. But they're still so far away from becoming a digital-first media property. And so I agree wholeheartedly with Ed that a big part of this is bringing in stakeholders who can help them expand internationally, but also, Kelly, digitally to younger audiences. All right, we'll see if they can pull it off. Guys, thanks all of you today. Bob Bassani, Sarah okay. Fisher, and Ed Lee. Still ahead, the Teamsters are taking on Amazon, pushing an effort to unionize and claiming it's not just for their own good, but for workers across industries as they take on, quote, the existential threat that is Amazon. Can they succeed? We have the details next. Welcome back, everybody. A major victory for America's most power labor, uh, labor organization as they take on Amazon. Deirdre Bosa here with the news and the details for us. Deirdre? Yeah, so per Jeff Bezos' final shareholder letter as CEO, he wants Amazon to be, quote, the world's best employer. Now the Teamsters want to hold him and Andy Jassy accountable. The nationwide union just passed not long ago a resolution creating a special Amazon division. The goal here is to aid Amazon workers through strikes and, quote, 
action in the streets. Now, Amazon's hiring spree last year added half a million workers and cemented its position as the second largest employer in the country, one known for what some call its ruthless efficiency. So the Teamsters really see the company's reputation as an existential threat to the standards that it has accomplished with other employers across different industries. One member who spoke at the convention said, quote, I keep hearing Amazon is looking to cross over into new industries. They're not satisfied with just dominating logistics. What will our communities look like if they continue their monopoly tactics? And that, Kelly, taps into another pressure point for Amazon, and that is the building antitrust scrutiny into its business practices that we know that lawmakers are looking into and acting on. Still, though, the Teamsters resolution is one step in what is most likely to be an uphill battle to unionize Amazon's workforce. Uh, just a few months ago, remember, we covered the failed effort to unionize at a Bessemer, Alabama warehouse where workers voted overwhelmingly in Amazon's favor against organizing. So getting the Teamsters treatment, treatment, that certainly raises this battle's profile, but it's probably too early to say whether they will have much success here, Kelly. Are there any other precedents or templates we can look at as to how this could play out? Yeah, so the Teamsters has been trying to unionize Walmart for years with very little success there. And also we know that these labor pressures on Amazon, they're nothing new. Amazon has been sort of, uh, you know, battling them for many years and union efforts haven't had much success. So it is certainly a long road. And just because you have the Teamsters support doesn't mean um, that things are going to happen instantly. Indeed, this is going to be a long, tough slog. Kelly. All right. Dear Joe Bosa, bringing us that Teamsters Amazon news today. Thank you. We appreciate it. Still ahead, PwC predicting this year will be a record for deals in the pharma sector. Up next, three beaten down biotech names one strategist says are ripe for a takeover. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Huge deal making is expected in pharma and biotech this year. PwC saying that M&A will hit a record, although regulatory uncertainty could become a big headwind. My next guest says buy these biotech names anyway and has three stocks he sees as potential takeover targets. Joining me now is Kevin Mon. He's the chief investment officer at Henyon and Walsh Asset Management. You know, not not an area usually ripe with excitement. So why all the excitement for pharma deals this year? And what are your three picks? I mean, Kelly, COVID-19 served as a very painful reminder of the need for innovative healthcare solutions in our society. And even beyond COVID-19, there are many other rare and chronic diseases that still need effective treatments and potentially cures. And generally, they come from the smaller cap biotech names. From an investment perspective, we see the opportunity as it relates to the M&A potential of these smaller cap biotech companies that have these innovative healthcare solutions that are currently in the FDA approval pipeline. Yes, Sarepta might be the most notable, uh, widely followed one anyway. So you have Sarepta Bluebird, and is it Atara? It's Atara Biotherapeutics, it's Bluebird Bio, and of course it's Sarepta Therapeutics. The first two are smaller cap names with market caps of roughly $1 billion and $2 billion respectively, and Sarepta is more of a mid-cap name, Kelly, with a market cap of roughly $6 billion. All three, though, represent this type of innovative healthcare treatments that society needs right now using T cell immunotherapies, using things such as gene therapies and gene editing to help combat afflictions such as cancer and even multiple sclerosis. Atara is up 25% this year. Uh, Bluebird is down about the same amount. So tell me just about the valuation in these stocks. If they have uh, therapies that are, could be a strategic fit for larger businesses, is that sort of takeover multiple already priced in? 
We don't we don't necessarily think uh, we're trying to identify those companies that have at least one drug in the FDA approval process, either in clinical stage two or clinical stage three trials, because that's when those companies are most attractive to those larger cap pharmaceutical companies that need to acquire these smaller cap biotech companies to help replace lost revenue potential, either through the push down in drug prices or through some of their larger revenue producing drugs that have now come off patent and are subject to generic pricing. Right. The patent cliff. But that's a good point, too, about drug pricing yep. hurting the top line. So final question, because PwC is warning about regulatory pushback. What kind of concerns are for amount for you think for regulators here? I think it becomes all about the pace of that FDA approval process. We saw over the last four to five years the pace of that approval process picking up if that starts to slow down. And we see a lot of these drugs kind of stuck between level two and level three approval status. That could actually pick up the pace of the acquisition uh, trade because once these drugs get approved, they demand an even higher premium. And the large cap pharmaceutical companies want to buy them prior to that large premium that they may have to buy. So as we look at the large cap pharma companies, who would potentially be the acquirers? And is it, you know, we were just speaking about the media space a few minutes ago and how one large deal often catalyzes the rest of them. So, you know, could they all become potential players if this consolidation happens this year? Uh, who in particular do you think has the most urgency? Yeah, and it may not necessarily, Kelly, be the names that you're familiar with. Of course, we always hear about J&J and Pfizer looking to actually enhance their revenue potential by buying some of these more innovative healthcare solutions. But look at the deal that was announced back in February when Jazz Pharmaceuticals announced that they were going to acquire GW Pharmaceuticals at a roughly $220 per share. GW Pharmaceuticals, of course, in the medical marijuana field. That's another example of the type of M&A activity we're experiencing and we're seeing and we think will continue through the remainder of 2021. You alluded to it earlier, but PwC has projected a record year for M&A activity in the biotech space with up to potentially $275 billion hmm. in deal activity anticipated. Wow. An interesting side effect, if you want to call it that, of the pandemic. Kevin, thanks for bringing those names to us and talking us through it. We appreciate it, Kevin Mott. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.